Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, it is a wild card season, meaning anything goes. So in this week's episode, we will talk about Dorothy Erskine. Listeners, I promise this won't be another Dorothy Doris season again. <laughs> you know, just it's different, highly coincidental. But this Dorothy, she is an environmentalist urbanist who founded the Greenbelt Alliance and the organization called SPUR. I'm Jessica Rogers, recovering from all of the holiday hoopla based out of Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rahr, enjoying time with family in Holland, Michigan. And I'm Nardini Rivas, enjoying my new gifts out of Houston, Texas. All right. Now for our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning together. All right. So our story begins with Dorothy's parents. Dorothy's mother was Dr. Florence Nightingale Ward, one of the first female surgeons who opened her own hospital in San Francisco. Hold up. What year was this? Was this person named after Florence Nightingale, the British nurse? And then, spoiler alert, she grew up to be in the healthcare profession? Yeah, wait, what? My first thought was like, is this a mother-daughter pairing? Like, is this our first one? <laughs> nope, these are two different Florences. That's interesting. I mean, I didn't think they were related, but I thought that maybe it was like an homage to the nurse Florence Nightingale, like she was named after her. Yeah, that would make sense. 
Nope. Purely coincidental. Really? That's wild. Right? <laughs> I think, I mean, this is giving me ideas. If I have a daughter, maybe I should name her Lena Bobardi Herrera Rivas and then see where that takes her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because she was named Florence Nightingale and she became a surgeon. So exactly. Predestination. I mean, I'm pretty sure this has to be a coincidence. There are two different Florences. Considering their professions, there had to have been some crossover between the two. So, listeners, episode 21, that Florence, she was born in 1821 and was a nurse that influenced the healthcare sector of architecture. This Florence Nightingale Ward was a surgeon and a physician that was born in San Francisco in 1860. She built her own sanatorium exclusively for women, where she would employ an all-female staff and provide medical training for women. That sounds so great. She could have her own episode, I think. She sounds like mm. a surgeon slash developer or visionary of all female spaces. You know, I like that. But <laughs> especially in those times. Okay, first off, I'm curious, what is a sanatorium? Because I'm not sure. But in those times, anything healthcare related, I bet it would have been more safe to be among other women and for your doctors to be women. So an all-women sanatorium sounds good, but I still don't know what a sanatorium is. Do you know, Jessica? Can you tell us? Yes. Okay, so her mother was fascinating. Um, but a sanatorium, it's basically an asylum or a hospital that deals with specific diseases. So I think we spoke about a sanatorium when we talked about the Eames because they designed sanatoriums uh, for tuberculosis patients. So, yeah, it's... It's exactly what you said. It's I think if it's a sanatorium for women and women specific illnesses, I think that's that was the goal. I think the idea of having more women in the healthcare profession was also a really cool idea, too. But that's her mom. That's Dorothy's mom. And now for the record, her dad, he was also a doctor by the name of Dr. James William Ward. And Dorothy also had a sister named Jean Ward Wolf, who also became a doctor. And, you know, future, you know, spoiler alert, Dorothy has a daughter and her daughter will become a doctor and she would name her Florence after her grandmother, not Florence Nightingale. But, you know, I'm just getting ahead of myself. Oh, my gosh. I'm losing track of all these medical professionals. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the genes, apparently. I know. So but wait, this lady that we're talking about, Dorothy, because I'm like losing mm -hmm. track of all the people. Dorothy's not yeah. a doctor, right? Yeah, I'm like, is she going to be a doctor designer, too? Where's yeah. she going? <laughs> <laughs> no, she she isn't. She's no, she doesn't talk about doctor stuff at all. Just about how it's all up in her family. Uh, but I just think it's interesting. I wanted it was like interesting tidbits that I learned about her because, you know, the fact that these two doctors would give birth to someone that wasn't a doctor. But anyway. Let's get back to Dorothy, because I've just been talking about her, her parents, right? So Dorothy was born on July 29th, 1896. Her parents, great people, they were married. But in my research, it mentioned that Dorothy was basically raised by only her mother, referring to her mother as a single parent. Oh, interesting. That's weird. Yeah. Do you know what mm -hmm. happened to dad? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, right, these 
fascinating family, Dr. History nerds out there, listeners. You guys, like, probably, this probably rings a bell. Looking up the contribution of folks with the surname Ward, it will definitely lead you down this, like, weird rabbit hole of, like, medical history of just, like, what doctors' contributions were. And with this guy in particular, the dad, he didn't die prematurely. He, you know, and unfortunately, I didn't find, like, any other, like, promiscuous drama or scandalous rendezvous. (laughs) I mean, he seemed like a decent dude. I love how I, I love this. Like, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> what is this, Jessica? I just, I love where your mind goes. I know. She's so sad that there was no drama and that he just left his family for no apparent reason. Apparently. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, like, why wasn't he in the picture, right? Like, I just, you know, I wanted to find some why razzle dazzle to the story. Why are you wishing bad things on people? <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe not just a razzle-dazzle, you know, like, what what, what did this guy do or didn't do? Or I don't know, just, but anyway, yes, despite the non-razzle-dazzle of his life, I will say he was a good guy. It appears to me that this man was just very busy, (laughs) you know? He like he did a lot of stuff. Um, what I did find out though was that Florence was James's second wife, but that's no drama there. He was just kicking butt in the medical industry. He was the health commissioner during the time of the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. He became president of different medical societies and traveled to different parts of Europe to further develop his medical profession. Well, that's understandable, I guess, that he's working hard. I guess. Yeah. But I still think that parenting should be a team sport. So mm-hmm. I feel that it's a little bit bad that Florence had to single parent, you know? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. okay. But I still feel like, like you're saying, make some time for your kids, sir. Like, it doesn't mean he didn't do great things in his career, but be there for your children. That would have been mm-hmm. nice. Or... You think maybe he didn't want the kids? He was just like a sperm donor? I mean, his actions say a lot. Or lack of action, I should say. Yeah, Jessica, here's the drama you wanted. Lizzie and I are making it happen for you. (laughs) You're welcome. I've been such a bad influence on you guys, but I love it. (laughs) Here I am, reformed, not trying to make assumptions and bring the drama, and yet here we are. Oh, well, it is... I'm no. trying. I mean, it's recovery. I'm trying. You, you guys know me so well. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So I barely scratched the surface of Dorothy's mom, Florence, but she also did a thing. She would raise three kids. So I mentioned her Dorothy's sister, but she also had a brother. And it was noted that Dorothy's mom would take her kids on trips to Japan and Europe. So I'm hoping that her dad was there too, but that's all I got. Oh, that sounds fun. But also, kudos to Florence for traveling internationally with three children on her own, since, let's Mm -hmm. be honest, James was too busy for this trip. We know it. We know it. Mm -hmm. But I kind of see, like, maybe he had to work so much so he could pay for all these trips, because that sounds fun, but really expensive. I mean, I guess that's his one contribution. (laughs) I love how we're we're bashing this guy today for no reason. (laughs) Anyway, he woke up and chose violence. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, he, I mean, he was probably doing his best. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. I guess. We don't know enough. We don't know. I mean, he also traveled, right? So I'm hoping that they just, they would meet up with each other. But anyway, let's, this this concludes the drama part of Dorothy's family. <laughs> Parent history. Glad. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I want to get back to Dorothy. Yeah. All right. So that wraps up Dorothy's childhood somewhat. What I can also say about her upbringing is that Dorothy would attend Miss Burke's school for high school and younger. And then eventually she would go to the University of California at Berkeley. So Miss Burke's school was originally a K through 12 school for girls founded by Catherine Delmar Burke in 1908. She wanted to start a school for girls to prepare for college rather than the typical finishing school that was really prominent at that time. The school moved buildings several times over the years, but it still exists today in the Seacliff neighborhood of San Francisco as a K through eight school for girls called Catherine Delmar Burke School. And actually, Julia Morgan designed one of the buildings that they used to use for the school in Pack Heights. Oh, so while Dorothy was at Berkeley, she would meet a man by the name of Morse Erskine, a quote unquote fighting liberal attorney whom she would marry in 1918. So was he related to Samuel Morse, creator of the Morse code or... (laughs) Were his parents <laughs> big fans of Mr. Morse? Like, what is that name? <laughs> we have a lot of people, like, potentially named after famous people, I guess. Today, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leave it to Jessica to find the famous people Of episode. course, yeah. Well, you're not how I am. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if what you say is what you think it is with Samuel Morse. I, I couldn't find that information about his dad. But what I will say is that Dorothy's father-in-law was also a doctor <laughs> that moved to California during the gold rush, and he would establish a hospital in Sacramento. So besides these random anecdotes, it was hard for me to find out what more happened in her personal life because her work was I guess, more prevalent in my research. But before we get to the work that she is known for, I have to mention that Dorothy, she was a successful writer and editor. She would write novels such as The Soviet Union, The Big Ride, and The Founding of San Francisco. She she would write novels about those things. About those things, but some of them are the titles. So oh. like The Big Ride is one of her titles. I see. Okay. Well, those sound like some broad subjects. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, she sounds very well-rounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll be sure to include a few of the photos of the covers in the show notes. But to give you an idea, which I don't know, it just seems interesting what she was writing about. So The Big Ride, it was a novel about a little boy that rides a horse named Prickly Pear from Mexico to San Jose. Um, I just wanted to point that out because that was a book that was like recognized nationally of hers, which I thought was pretty cool. So, but like I mentioned, she was an environmentalist and urbanist. So Dorothy would first become interested in public housing back in 1938. So we're we're jumping ahead to 1938. Um, At that time, public housing legislation would have been passed in the U.S. 
She and people like Martha Gerbud, Alice Griffith, and Elizabeth Ash would form an economic study group to study different neighborhoods and housing conditions, aka, which it basically became the beginning of the San Francisco Housing Association. During her time there, Chinatown would be one of their case studies. Ooh, that's neat. Actually, Lizzie, have you been to Chinatown? Yeah. In San Francisco? Mm-hmm. It's the largest and oldest Chinatown in North America, actually. Really? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, so it must be huge. It's big, yeah. It's cool that you've been in Dorothy's stomping grounds. We should go there <laughs> next time we visit you. Yeah, we should. It's about 24 square blocks. There's a lot of good food there. Mm. Um, I can see how Chinatown would be a really good case study for public housing, though. Even to this day, it's a very densely populated area and has a lot of SROs or single room occupancies, which are more affordable than other housing. Oh, I see. I see now. I want to do a study, too. That would be interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I am curious to look at what Chinatown is now versus what it was when Dorothy saw it. Because according to Dorothy, at Dorothy's time, what she saw were conditions similar to what we saw in Chicago and New York City. Um, So in San Francisco's Chinatown, they would have horrible living conditions, families of seven or eight in one room. There would only be one bathroom per hallway serving like several families at once. Diseases like tuberculosis were very common in those conditions. And her group at the beginning of what is now SPUR, which I'm jumping ahead, they would publish reports of these types of findings and share them with the local citizens. Well, people weren't living like that because they wanted to. They had very limited choices, I'm sure. Yeah, that is true. And through these findings, in addition to the Public Housing Act getting passed in Washington, D.C., California was able to receive a few federal subsidies for low-income housing. Oh, good. I wonder to what degree that actually helped. Yeah, that's a good question. So I didn't get into much detail about what they were able to contribute, specifically what Dorothy herself was able to contribute. But what I can say is that the group that they were a part of, the San Francisco Housing Association, Martha, Elizabeth, and Alice, before Dorothy would join, I guess, they would help pass the first legislation after the earthquake in 1906 to prevent jerry building in the reconstruction of San Francisco. What's jerry building? It's referring to the term jerry rigging, meaning it was built chip cheaply or poorly what is that a thing do people say well, jerry this? i mean jerry rigging is i've never heard I've of jerry never building. i've never heard of jerry rigging or jerry building never in my life yeah like you just jerry rig something together that's no, like no. you you just like Look, did it quick and easy <laughs> no i gotta say as the daughter of a jerry i'm very offended by these terms <laughs> i hope i never hear them again I'm sorry. Jerry rigging yes. is a very common term. It's, I use it, it should be banned. frequently. Don't do it in front of me. You haven't Watch. done it in our decade of friendship. Don't start Watch now. Watch me. Watch me. <laughs> friendship over. Oh, no. We're feisty this morning. <laughs> well, you really are. I've been trying to keep it cool. And y'all just bringing on the fire. <laughs> what the heck is just... this Jerry rig? Anyway, keep going. Like... <laughs> I just told you what it means. Yeah, but like, where where did it come from? What is this violence against Jerry's? Okay, so we gonna make a charade after it's this. Like gerrymandering. About, about Jerry? Are yeah, you offended by the term gerrymandering? I tell you all the wonderful things about Jerry, and we're gonna make up new terms. <laughs> 
Don't get me wrong. Jerry's great. interview your papa. <laughs> Jerry's love, great. Jerry I love Riggin Jetty. Don't Jerry get me wrong. Mandering. I know you do. Yeah. Jetty's great. Jerry rigging, Jerry building. <laughs> Jerry In mandering. the context of building is not that good. All right. But luckily, people like Dorothy's people, they're making it better to prevent that stuff. Giving Jerry a better name. Just, just to Jetty. All right. But anyway, we're getting into a rabbit hole, but I can tell you that doing... My research on the history of Chinatown, it also led me into this weird rabbit hole in the history of Chinatown in San Francisco. Because even though it's considered a tourist destination now, (laughs) it has some pretty grim origin stories to it. The fire and earthquake in 1906 provided the Chinese immigrants living in San Francisco at the time an opportunity to become citizens. But before that, there's the Chinese Exclusion Act. And when the fire happened and the earthquakes and all that stuff, all of those records would get destroyed. I'm not sure it's I'm telling it right, but it's fascinating. There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Okay. wait, let me break this down for myself because I'm not familiar with all this history and I want to make sure I understood you. So there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is exactly what it sounds like. And Mm -hmm. then... When the fire happened, it was a terrible tragedy, but also a lot of records got destroyed. And then people were able to work around the Exclusion Act and get new records and become citizens. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Got it. Moving on. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So we're back in 1938, right? Dorothy's working on her studies of Chinatown and her interests in public housing. It was what brought her to the ladies that I mentioned, Martha, Alice, and Elizabeth. She would get involved with the San Francisco Housing Association. But Dorothy and her ladies, they weren't the only ones having these conversations about public housing. Around this time, Dorothy would come across a group that referred to themselves as telesis, which is a Greek word meaning environment. Okay, I'm not going to lie. The name of this group is giving me secret society vibes, like some Illuminati (laughs) kind of thing. Was there an induction ceremony? Are there rituals? I have many follow-up questions about Telesis. I was thinking the same thing. I was curious about this name. It made me think that people were moving things with their mind or something, like some (laughs) Jedi mind tricks, you know? Yeah. (laughs) They wore robes and met by glowing... No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like, we called it. No, they did seem like a very hippie group. I will say that, hearing her describe this group. But anyway, none of the above, okay? They weren't Jedis and all that stuff. I'm sure they loved Star Wars. But anyway... They were interested in city planning. They were actually a group of new grads from Berkeley, um, and they believed that planning the city environment would answer many societal problems. Now, they don't go into detail about what those societal problems were, but it did get me thinking. Ladies, that is such a broad statement. But do you guys think that city planning or urban planning can solve societal problems? I mean, it depends on which ones, but in general, I would answer yes. I I mean, the definition of city planning is solving different problems in the urban scale. And we can solve a lot of problems through design, but just like eminent domain, there's a lot of things that we do to solve societal problems that end up causing other ones. So the unintended consequences of the design 
is a more debatable subject to me than if urban planning can solve problems. Because, I mean, I think that's a clear yes. Yeah, I agree. A lot of urban planning, I think, can be really great and beneficial, but it often means you have to make space for it and possibly displace people or the construction can cause issues for those around it. So I guess it's more of a question of the benefits outweighing the consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it was an interesting topic. You know, as designers, we believe that the power of design can solve lots of problems. But put in the context of urban planning and society, it just makes you think more about like public policy. It -hmm. also makes me think of like the causes and effects, like what you're saying. And I mean, we've been talking about this offline. What changes will happen if, you know, what would happen if states banned gas powered vehicles? You know, like will street parking include plugs for electrical cars? Is there anything that we can foresee happening because of this? I just think of like if one policy gets made, how does that affect the impact of an architect's work? So, Mm. uh, I mean, I think I might have read that in some places, houses are restricted at what times they're allowed to use uh, the energy. So if you follow that model, that some houses have times when they have electricity or water, like what what does that imply with how we build things moving forward? Or I don't know. It's just sorry, I I can get on a weird tangent about this because it's just so it's it's interesting, right? How these things affect architects. But listeners, yeah. take note. This question might be interesting for your next salon. If you have one <laughs> of those things, we should bring those back. Salons. Salon. <laughs> Salons. Well, I agree. This is a really interesting topic to dive into. But we should get back to Dorothy and the Telesis Illuminati Jedis. Maybe we can discuss <laughs> this further on the wrap up. Yes. Tell us more about Dorothy. Yeah, we've gone on some (laughs) weird tangents as of late. So anyway, (laughs) this group, not the Jedi group, but sounds like it, the Telesis group, they would meet with Dorothy's group, uh, the San Francisco Housing Association. And through these, their discussions, similar to our conversations, they would come to realize that the term planning needs to be included when discussing housing. I'm assuming it's referring to any future developments. So similar to what we we're saying. Well, yeah. OK, this is very interesting. So you're telling me that this is the start of planning departments? <laughs> yeah. They got this idea when the group Telesis, which comprises of guys like Jack Kent, Mel Scott, and Fran Voyage, they believed that when it comes to solving societal problems, quote, public housing is only a drop in the bucket. What you really need to do to improve society is planning, end quote. Mm, that's really thought-provoking. I feel like we could pause here and break this down, but I would have to think about that for a while. Yeah, that's super interesting. I also feel like I need to digest it a bit. I have I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we got to channel our inner Catherine Bauer for this. Re-listen to episode 24 to remember what was going on with housing at the time, because it sounds like it was the same time. Remember yeah. that she was mm-hmm. a houser? Yes. Yes. So maybe we can do that. Maybe we bring this back up in the wrap up. We'll see. Yeah, I'd be really curious to know what it was like between the East Coast, Midwest, and the West Coast. But Mm -hmm. anyway, back to Lizzie's earlier question, though. We are talking about the beginning of the planning department. 
Dorothy's group would basically rebrand themselves and be called the San Francisco Planning and Housing Association. Did you know that at the time, even though San Francisco was considered this like big city or whatever, until this time, they didn't have a city planning department. Well, I mean, what was the time? The 1940s, right? Yeah. So is that really super late? Did the rest Mm -hmm. of the big cities have a planning department decades before? I think it it sounds reasonable in the timeline of history. I mean, remember, again, bringing up Catherine Bauer and all the craziness that was happening in cities and nothing was regulated. It's all the same time. So I I actually think that the planning department came about because Mm -hmm. of these things. Yeah, I agree. I think it's not as surprising as it might initially feel like, even though it doesn't feel like it's that long ago. But I think that time in history was when a lot of those regulatory groups were starting to form and things like planning departments and zoning departments were starting, right? I will say though, like what Jessica is describing is not what I imagine the planning department today. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. I have very (laughs) different associations with the planning department. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I will say, I think with, from what I'm reading and what we know of it as it is today, They probably are different and it's evolved. But I don't know. I just at this time, I do know that they had zoning departments. But I just I guess what surprises me is that you would think that after that fire and earthquake of 1906, that they would have had some sort of department or committee for the reconstruction of San Francisco, you know? You know how slow bureaucracy can be. Yeah, I get what you're saying. But I think after such a huge disaster, there isn't time to like wait around for all the buildings to be regulated. Like, I know that was true. Like there have been a bunch of wildfires here in the eight years that I've lived in California and building departments definitely expedited things after fires that destroyed like whole neighborhoods and things like that. Right. Like You just need to build ASAP because people need places to live. And I think that's more of a building department thing than it is a planning department thing. Yeah, I guess so. I just feel like a zoning department and a planning department, I feel like they would have gone hand in hand. Yeah, that's true. I think today those are often one in the same or they work side by side. But at that time, I guess it hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. It also depends your jurisdiction. I mean, in Houston, it's 2022. Too, and we don't have a zoning department. <laughs> Literally the Wild West out there. It's where we're at. Land of the free. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. So let, let, let's get back to 1940s. So Dorothy, you know, while she's working at the San Francisco Planning and Housing Association, Dorothy would also simultaneously create the San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Association, a.k.a. SPUR. And uh, she did this with the women that she worked with on the Chinatown study, which I, we, were, we had been talking about. But I guess that Chinatown study, it basically transferred to, like, this new group. But yeah, SPUR. SPUR! I love that we're talking about the lady who started SPUR. They are such a great organization. They're a nonprofit public policy organization who try to develop solutions for big problems that cities face, often through bringing together people from various parts of the political spectrum. They actually put out a voting guide every election to help you understand all of the propositions, because a lot of times they're related to, you know, city and urban issues. And 
they will explain what it means for urban development. I always refer to it. I just did in this last election. They had a great voter guide and it's really, really helpful for you to kind of understand both sides of it and what the benefits are to how it might help urban development. That's so cool. Sounds like something all cities should have. Right. I wonder Mm -hmm. if we have that in Houston. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. I just don't know. Maybe. I think Virginia, we had a voter's guide that I thought was helpful or sometimes local state, like state websites have one. Yeah. San Francisco puts out a voter guide, but I just really like spurs because they're looking at it from a different, like from an urban planning lens and it's not based on like ads or, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I think would be good for a lot of cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So... We are back with this teleesis group. Um, Illuminati. <laughs> so the <laughs> folks from this group, they would really influence Dorothy's way of thinking. OK, now, not through telekinesis. She didn't drink the Kool-Aid or do the blood oath because she would say that she wasn't a part of this group. She was just really buddy buddies <laughs> with the members. OK, maybe she just didn't like the robes that they wore or Anyway, just uh, you see what People you guys are gonna do to think me. They actually, you're I yeah. am, <laughs> you're building up this picture, and people are gonna leave the podcast thinking this group was a cult. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, either way, if it was, if it wasn't, I don't know. But Dorothy wasn't a part of it. She was just associated with it because she was buddy buddies with these people. Okay. Okay. And she would like don't at us, Telesis. <laughs> I don't think I don't think this group exists anymore. If it does, it's some underground stuff. But anyway, the point is, is that this group together, they would do a lot of great things. Okay, they talked a lot about this concept called citizen support and how they could use the citizens to address those societal problems, but also use them to bring changes to the built environment and expand beyond just the local community and then grow regionally. This is giving me Lena Babardi, Mayumi Watanabe de Sousa vibes mm-hmm. with community engagement and participatory design. Yeah, I like it definitely feeling those vibes. Yes. So this brought the creation of another group called Citizens for Regional Recreation and Parks in 1958. That was also created by Dorothy. And their goal was to create large regional parks amongst the urban sprawl that was happening a lot during that time. Solving more and more societal problems through design. (laughs) Love it. Yes. Okay, so this group... Uh, they would host a conference each year for three years uh, consecutively, along with the University of California, to discuss these topics. Their first year, they had a theme that was called Our Vanishing Open Space. The second year, it was called Now or Never. And then the third one was called San Francisco Bay as a Recreational Resource. I wish I could have joined those discussions, especially Now or Never. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I want right. to meet the person that came up with those names. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of got bored by the third one around. Like, that one seems less, <laughs> less interesting. Anyway. Yeah. They, they got, they were like, we can't come up with something so spiffy like the year After before. After now or so. never? Like, yeah. They were like, can't be well, beat. Can't be beat. <laughs> All right. But uh, despite 
what it sounds like. This third conference that they had, which, by the way, it took place in 1961, it would actually become its most popular one. Because during this conference, they brought in the Corps of Engineers and they were circulating a picture of plans of the Bay Area being filled for production. Now, included in this study, it was already noted that one third of the Bay Area had been diked off and filled. And this enraged attendees and the local citizens. It was as if people finally woke up, is what uh, Dorothy refers to it, which would lead to this like save the San Francisco Bay movement. Can you imagine if the San Francisco Bay didn't exist? Mm. No, it's I mean, yeah, it's crazy to think about. But it was really common for them to fill in the edges of the existing city to make more space. There are still certain neighborhoods today that are primarily built on fill, like the marina, parts of Soma and Dogpatch, which is a bit dicey in an earthquake because, you know, liquefaction. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's scary stuff. (laughs) Well, I'm glad Dorothy and her group were able to put a stop to this. This is a very Jane Jacobs hero story. You Mm. know... I can see a comic book series about the two of them saving cities. <laughs> Someone do it. Yeah. Make uh, it happen. No, we're going to put it in our idea bank just in case. Yeah. We, we might do that. But <laughs> it is interesting to think of Dorothy because she does seem very similar to Jane. Um, but maybe more from like an environmentalist perspective. I think is what makes them different between the two. But the majority of the information that I'm getting from, by the way, is this interview that Dorothy herself did with a guy by the name of John Jacobs, who was the executive director of Spur in 1971. It will be in the show notes, of course, because it's really interesting to read. Um, In it, she talks about this particular time, and I interpret it as how environmentalism and urban planning can go hand in hand. A very important topic to dive into today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that she's looking at the two together. Yes. All right. So with the Save the Bay movement, Dorothy talks about how it's not just about saving the birds or just one section of the shore. However, it's about saving the whole region of the Bay Area and that it required a much larger way of thinking. Here's a quote from that interview where she says, it became very clear that evening that you don't save the bay just for the birds or even one section of shore. You couldn't save it in Marin and lose it to developers and say in Mateo County. If it was to be saved at all, it would have to be saved by regional planning and regional thinking. The bay was a regional resource. Suddenly, regional planning and regional thinking became living concepts because of the passionate feelings that had been aroused over preserving the bay. That's so true. I mean, all of those things affect one another, right? So you can't expect to fix one tiny part without addressing all the other areas. Exactly. When I introduced Dorothy at the beginning of the episode, I said that she was the founding member of SPUR and the Green Belt Alliance. So it seemed like they were kind of created in parallel with one another or right after SPUR was created, the Green Belt Alliance was created. But actually, that committee that I mentioned, the Citizens for Regional Recreation and Parks, that's what would become the Green Belt Alliance. Man, she started so many committees and groups. It's like really hard to keep track. I wonder how she did it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I cannot keep up with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, the Citizens for Regional Recreation and Parks group, they were responsible for that Save the Bay movement from landfill and development. 
And then over time, they would change the name to People for Open Space because their cause expanded beyond parks to include farms, ranches, and wildlife preserves. Right. Those vanishing open spaces. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Yes. But then this group would become the Greenbelt Alliance because it merged with another group, which, quote, bringing together activism and science-based policy research. This group would be responsible for permanently protecting the Green Belt in the Bay Area. So, yeah, it's Ooh. it's hard to keep track because, yeah, a lot of name changes and rebrands, but they mm -hmm. all do good. Yeah. But what I will say is that today, the Green Belt Alliance remains the Bay Area's leader in preserving open spaces and fostering smart growth. That's amazing. I love that it exists to this day, making sure these areas are protected. Yeah, I've definitely heard of this group, but I didn't know any of the background and history of it. So it's really cool to learn about it. Yeah. So smart growth or smart growth cities. Listeners, it refers to cities that promote walkability, variation of transportation with bike lanes and public transportation and a range of housing options. Smart. Mm -hmm. I love it. So it seems like a lot of what they did was buy properties and then let them become parks or just open green spaces. Dorothy didn't necessarily do it herself, but as a group, that's what they would do. Well, her family wasn't crazy rich like your other Dorothys from last season. So <laughs> she probably couldn't afford to do those things all by herself. That's why she was instrumental in starting those 1,000 different organizations, committees, initiatives. <laughs> And together, they could do all the things. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Okay, so San Franciscans out there, a lot of your favorite parks and green spaces might sound familiar and can be credited to Dorothy and her organizations. One example is the Sunnyside Conservatory. Now it's a city landmark, but it was threatened for demolition too. Before the land was bought, that is. Um, another park that might sound familiar is credited to Dorothy is the park that has her namesake, the Dorothy Erskine Park which is located at the top of Baden Street. I love this. I will admit I have never been to either of these parks, but now I will have to check them out. <laughs> yeah, and yes. take pictures so we can share them. Take pictures um, because this park, it overlooks so much of SF. You can see groves of eucalyptus trees. So you got to go and check it out and you got to show us because I saw... Um, the photo of the dedication of mm -hmm. the park when they dedicated to Dorothy because she was alive and kicking and very present at the dedication oh. of this park to her, which was so in cool. 1979. Ooh, that's wonderful. I'm glad that she was recognized and felt the love in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will have a photo of her at the ceremony in our show notes that also included... At that ceremony, members of the organization and even the mayor was in attendance. Lovely. That's so cool. Yes. So in September of 1982, just three years after that dedication, Dorothy would pass away. Sorry, I had to take a minute because I was like, what? I thought that you said that she died three days later. But anyway, oh. um, <laughs> I was like, wait. Again, I'm so glad that she was celebrated in her lifetime. I mean... Yeah, the, it was not as dramatic as I thought when I was imagining three days later she passed away. But honestly, like, what a great life. 
so full of so many things. Not sure at all how she kept track of all of it, but I am so glad that she did. <laughs> a whirlwind of emotions there for you, Nergity. It was. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> but like you said, I'm really glad that people recognize the great work that she was doing and that it continues now after her death. Yeah. All right, ladies, now we have reached the second half of our episode, The Carrioted. Nergity, can you remind us what a carrioted is? Sure thing, Chica Wang. <laughs> a carrioted is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we choose a carrioted, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through her work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. So this week's carrioted goes to... <laughs> Greta Thunberg! Greta. Greta. Yeah. All right, so if y'all don't know who Greta Thunberg is, you must have been living under a rock. But for those of you that don't, Greta that live under rocks, is, apparently. Yeah, the people that live under rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Greta is probably our youngest character that we've ever had. Now, you would have heard of Greta, the environmental activist, when she made headlines when she was protesting outside the Swedish parliament advocating for climate change. At the age of 15, Greta was spending her Fridays demanding Parliament to take immediate action for climate change mitigation. In 2019, Greta was Time's Person of the Year. Yeah, Greta is a force of nature, and she's probably also the most high-profile karyotid we've ever had, too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> she is the big time. Yep. Now, okay, so Dorothy's work, it was very local. She talked about regionalism and, like, with the idea that it would grow. But Greta, she's doing things on a more global stage now. Um, so what made me think of these two is that they both want to make the world a better place. Dorothy is talking about topics such as urbanization, immigration, and sustainability. All the issues that are relevant today that Greta also fights for, which... I don't know. It makes me more hopeful for future generations to come. That's true. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but with advocates like Dorothy and Greta, there's hope, like you just said. Yeah, I'm hoping that we see the effects of both of their work. Yeah, Guess. me too. All right, y'all. Uh, it's been great. But before we sign off, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Dorothy and Greta along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a Gable Media Podcast Network member. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your environmentalists, your Jedi mind trick telekinesis people, <laughs> cult wearing robes. <laughs> Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This all helps us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. 
We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter, shebuildspod. Until then, bye. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw. Turkish codes are good and and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations, that's a fun topic on this project follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to unstruct from within your walls hear the story behind how your building stands today